Mark My Words shares Mark Homer's contrarian views on investing, business, finance, economics, and all things money. Mark interviews the world's most successful business, finance, and money experts, as well as imparting his knowledge in a factual, direct, and no-nonsense manner. Welcome to Mark My Words, and here is your host, Mark Homer. Hello, this is Mark Homer for Mark My Words. I've got Nelson Gray here today, who is a private equity investor with a lot of experience investing around the world in new startup businesses, seed investment, you know, investment that is right at the ground level. Uh, it's quite risky, but for the companies that it works for, he can make massive returns. It can be a very tax efficient way of investing, but I'm going to let Nelson tell you more about how all this works. So Nelson, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So just explain to my listeners, what is it you do and how do you do it? Well, I'm fortunate to be in a position where I can uh, spend a significant amount of my time investing money, perhaps more importantly, time and effort into interesting new startup ideas, most of which are technology, but not always technology companies. And obviously, the idea is that we are looking for significant high growth potential companies that are going to provide us a substantial return. But we've got to be patient about it because it does take a few years. It's not a quick financial return. I like to think of myself as somebody whose job is to make other people millionaires. And then in return, I get a very modest and well-deserved slice of the action. (laughs) So, I mean, you didn't just wake up one morning or, you know, you didn't, you weren't born a a private equity investor. What sort of led you here? Why did you come down this path? I grew up with what was effectively a a family business. I was involved in it from my earliest recollections. Went off, did a university degree, became a chartered accountant, went back into the family business. It developed. And then at the beginning of the 90s, I was in a fortune position that somebody wanted to buy that business and we sold the business to a German operator. And that left me with time eventually and some capital to do something else interesting. I didn't have any brilliant new ideas of my own, but I soon discovered there were lots of other people who had exciting new ideas, some of which turned out to be brilliant and some of which sounded good to start with and turned out to be disasters when we can probably talk about the disasters as much as the the successes in due course. And so I I kind of drifted into this idea of being involved in other people's businesses and being a mentor, being a non-executive director. And back then, I think I did my first angel investment in 1996, and I'm not even sure we called ourselves business angels back then. We just thought it was a good idea to become involved in some exciting interesting new businesses and it's just it's kind of gone from there one step at a time you started off not knowing very much or if anything about investing and being involved in other people's businesses and gradually over the years picked up hopefully some experience which i'm happy to share and spend a fair amount of my time now traveling around the world sharing that experience You do a lot of speaking, don't you? You're on a lot of stages around the world. I know you've come back from Beijing recently. What were you talking to the Chinese about? Well, the Chinese, as with every country in the world now, I think has recognised that 
there's only so much that banks or governments or whatever can do to stimulate the economy. And they have launched a program, Business Angel College, with the initial intention of creating something like 60,000 business angels, which is an interesting, modest starter (laughs) target. (laughs) And so they organized a three-day conference and brought people in from uh, around the world, myself from the UK, people from America, from India, from South America, elsewhere, just trying to gather best practice as how they're going to develop their effectively private equity market at the seed and early stage. And they had about 750 potential angels in the audience at that stage. Very well done, very professional conference, and perhaps a little scary putting a lot of resource, a lot of effort into that uh, level of activity. And I think we're going to see a lot more companies such as, you know, we've seen Alibaba emerge out of China and uh, become a global player. Appeared like almost instantly, but obviously they've been there for a while. Yeah, rather small sort of corner shop operation, that Alibaba, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) It is a bit. And then I think that that's partly the scary thing. You know, we, we talked to a small company that was effectively operating a shopping channel for smartphones. And they had a very defined set of customers, young female buyers. They described it as very much a niche play, highly discriminatory in terms of who they would take on as customers. And then it emerged that this small niche within China was approximately 67 million customers. (laughs) The whole of the United (laughs) Kingdom. (laughs) I think, okay. (laughs) If you're coming from the UK or a region of the UK, if you thought that your initial customer target base was 67 million, you'd think you were onto a pretty big thing, but they disregard themselves as a niche player. Yeah, interesting. You got the Queen's Award for Enterprise Promotion, which I guess not that many people get. Why were you awarded that? It's a nice honour recognising time spent with entrepreneurs and helping entrepreneurs over a period of years. And somebody obviously thought that it would be a good idea if the work I've done or at least claimed to have done over the last decades or two got some kind of recognition. So yeah, I was privileged to receive that award in 2015. Great. Well, that's certainly more than I've got. You're so much younger, though. (laughs) Oh, yeah. You think I am. (laughs) Okay, so let's get into the the meat and the bones now of investing. You've done a hell of a lot of this, way more of this than me. I'm, you know, I don't sleep. I go through periods where I don't sleep well anyway, so I have to, um, most of my investments are limited to property deals because, um, I don't know, maybe I feel a little bit more comfortable but I'd probably do some of these sort of seed investment type, you know, type deals if, if I understood them better uh, and I got a bit more experience because, of course, knowledge is what keeps you safe effectively. So when you're looking at, you know, investing in a new startup, obviously you're into tech. I guess technology is an area that you focused on because of the potential high growth of the good operators or the operators that are successful versus, I don't know, stodgy industries like maybe utilities that are less risky, but you know, the the growth stories probably aren't there. So, I mean, how do you choose one of these tech companies to invest in? I'd actually like to take it a step back before we actually, I think there's a little bit of strategy to be considered before you start trying to pick stocks as it were. 
And I think this is perhaps the issue that some people have is that they jump in without really thinking out a strategy. I think if you were having any other type of investment, you've mentioned property or the stock market, you've probably got a general strategy about how much money you want to put into that sector, what sort of return you're looking for, what geographic area you're prepared to consider based on risk. And early stage, I'm going to keep calling it angel investing because that's what we call ourselves, business angels. I think it's very much the same. You should be quite careful and do a bit of research and say, okay, is this really for me? And I think you've got to start off by saying, okay, I'm going to allocate a certain amount of money to this sector. Not too much because it is high risk. We deliberately seek high risk because we're looking for higher returns. But that means you've got to have a portfolio approach. So you don't really go in and say, well, I'm going to do one or two investments. You've really got to say, I need over the next two or three or four years to build a portfolio of 10 to 15 companies. And therefore, a good way of starting is to find your local angel investment group or network and join that. So I, as an individual, would never now do angel investing by myself. I will always seek out partners to do the deals with me because I know that if I'm building a portfolio, I need to build portfolio, as I say, of 10 to 15 companies, and I'm going to have to fund the good ones over a number of years, so a number of rounds of funding. So I'll work out an an amount that I'm comfortable investing into each one, and it starts off relatively small for me. Angel investing is not necessarily something restricted to the super rich, but you can get involved in deal sizes of five to 10,000 that you contribute and you share it with five or six or 10 friends. And so you've got a hundred odd grand going into a company and then you mentor and work with that company and help it raise the next round and the round after. It's, It's something I think you've got to work at, you've got to have a strategy and you've got to understand that it is high risk. But with the right strategy, you can address that risk and you can make substantial returns. I think the best return that I know a colleague of mine, I have seen his spreadsheet and he genuinely has an IRR of 101%, which is a pretty good IRR. (laughs) Most people are kind of happy if they get about 25% IRR on their angel investments, but it can go stratospheric. Mm, That's quite incredible, isn't it? But I think you have, you've got to understand this. When I say it's high risk, it is significantly high risk. On any individual investment, there's a 70% chance, 70% chance that you will not get your money back. But that doesn't necessarily mean the company is going to fail, but the company may just kind of plod along, being a nice life, end up being a nice lifestyle company for the management team, keeping them alive, giving them a salary but nobody really wants to buy that company. So you don't really get an exit. So that's where I say you've got to have a portfolio and you put a little bit of money in on the first round of funding, if you like, the first time the company raises money. And then you see how the company's going and the ones that are performing and are clearly growing value and are of interest. Those are the ones you follow on and keep putting money into. And the other ones you gradually let go. So if you look at my Scottish Angel group, they started off in 1992, so they've been doing it for a while. But they've written off about 44% of their companies 
that they've only written off about 14% of their stake money because they put a positive IRR of 23% on the successful companies. So it's a numbers game. It's a risk spread game. So if 70% of the companies don't get bought or you know you don't effectively see your money back in any reasonable period of time what percentage of money gets lost in these deals is it 30 percent or a no i just said it's the loss on our portfolio of our 44 percent of companies is 14 percent of the money so we've lost 44 percent by number but only 14 percent by value that's because we've learned a thing or two over the last 20 odd years and we've learned to be more disciplined, perhaps, than many angel investors or even you know, crowdfunding investors. You, you see, this is the next best great thing. It's high voltage, you isn't all it? all your money into <laughs> the one good deal <laughs> and you hope that you know, it's going to win. Well, you might as well just go and buy some lottery tickets. Do you know what? I've, I've been saying this for a while. This is like credit crunch too. Obviously, it's not going to affect the economy in such a big way, but it will affect a lot of smaller investors, and I think it's already going on under the surface. The FCA look like they're quite interested in this crowdfunding. I suspect the losses are quite big. Is that your opinion? We're talking equity crowdfunding. Yeah, that's what I'm on about. Lots of, I mean, I think the, the loan crowdfunding through the established platforms is pretty good. Yeah, I think there are significant problems with the some of the crowdfunding that is going on because there have definitely been there have been academic reports produced where people have gone and said so why did you take your company and go crowdfunding rather than go to established business angels and the answer <laughs> i can imagine the, what the, the answer, the answer was. comes back is well we get higher valuations and less interference yeah. from the crowd. <laughs> less questions you <laughs> <laughs> say, well yeah okay yeah. <laughs> so basically you're going to uneducated people who get dazzled by the technology or the product yeah um are remote from the company and can't actually do due diligence and don't have the facility as we would do to appoint people onto the board and keep some control of direction. Well, uh, probably pretty good for the companies, but maybe not so for the investors. Well, I'm, I'm not even sure, frankly, that it's good for the company because we go back to this idea of the overall data. It's actually American data collected in real time that suggests a 70% failure rate. Presently, I think I have 22 companies that are existing investments. So if I lose 70% of the 22, I've still got enough that I'm going to make a profit on the portfolio. Yeah. For the entrepreneur, there's a 70% chance that their company will not provide them the dream that they're looking for. So it's unfortunate for the investor. It's a disaster for the entrepreneur. And I think entrepreneurs, there's a kind of cult of entrepreneurship these days where anybody who starts a business is called an entrepreneur and they must be brilliant. And the reality is that most entrepreneurs don't know what they're doing. If you love to travel like me and you understand the power in escaping the money for time exchange trap, but you just don't know how to do it, then building an Airbnb consultancy business could be exactly what you have been looking for. Right now in the UK, there is a completely untapped opportunity through helping struggling Airbnb hosts by turning around their underperforming properties and generating you huge commission payments in the process. 
We are going to teach you all of the tools and all of the techniques that we've learned over the last five years through building our very own multiple six-figure Airbnb business, arming you with everything that you need to swoop in and save the day. Minimal startup costs, zero risk, and almost unlimited potential. Sound good? Welcome to the Airbnb Consultant. Contact us through any of the channels included in the studio notes to get the conversation started. Because they've never done it before. Why should they know how to build a company of scale? That's the most important thing I think that external investors bring. It's not the cash. It's the fact that we've been involved in building literally hundreds of businesses and we can step in and we don't control the businesses. We don't tell the entrepreneur what to do, but we've got a lot of experience of where we've seen things go wrong in the past. And I think the, there's a high level of companies going into crowdfunding where the entrepreneur is frightened of taking genuine advice. They'll deny that absolutely. I have no doubt. <laughs> we did a survey once of the entrepreneurs that the group had invested in and said, what did you get other than just cash? And I think the best answer from one of the entrepreneurs or founders was a cold, sweaty feeling at the base of my spine. And I think we're there sometimes to give the founders a cold, sweaty feeling at the base of the spine and focus them on, let's actually create value here. Let's create value in the eyes of your next round funder, the VC who's going to come in and take you to the next level. Let's create value in the eyes of your acquirer so that you can actually become that multimillionaire that you've dreamt of being. It's not something that people know naturally how to do. No, and why would they? It's not something that's taught in school. You know, you may do your economics lectures or business studies, but I did them both and I'm not sure they... Uh, they taught me that much about how to structure or build a business in reality. And most of it's taught by sort of people who are quite theoretical and who haven't run businesses before. So I can really see the value in having angels there to support you in your business. I know Rob and I would have really appreciated that. We had a couple of business coaches in the early days that helped a lot. But I just know if they'd got skin in the game and they got money in our company, then they would have been even more interested in probably being a bit more forceful about making us take better decisions, which in hindsight would have been a brilliant thing. I would generally agree with that. I do think, though, that investors do due diligence on the company and on the founders and the management team, if you like. I think looking at it the other way around, the founders looking for money also have to do diligence on the investors. And I think you can take notice of what has the investor previously invested in. And I think that's why people looking for funding should, wherever possible, take it from multiple angels who have previously worked together. So if you go to an established angel group or an angel network, and there are plenty of them across the UK, then you get a better chance of being looked after in a decent manner. I would be a little concerned if somebody came along and funded my business and it was the only angel deal they'd ever done <laughs> and they were working by themselves and they'd never done an angel deal before and suddenly you find that this person turns into the dragon, not the angel. Well, I mean, I see. I know when I'm you know, about to do a property deal, We've had businesses, Rob and I, in the past where we've had a lot of people involved where we've been doing property deals or 
buying for you know at one stage over 100 people <laughs> i was dealing with over 100 investors and these are all small investors you know and they're you know largely inexperienced and it takes a lot of management i think we had three or four people in the office just dealing with them all day and uh, i know now when i do a property deal if i need external equity not so much the debt because as long as they get paid the debt monthly or at the end it, you know i find that probably simpler to manage but Certainly, if there's equity involved, I pick the person who is investing in the deal very carefully and try and reduce the number of them, which is a little bit counter to what you're saying with some of the deals that I'm doing. But Well, I think you have to have a strategy to manage numbers. So if we're talking about a, a technology business, I think it may be slightly different with a property deal because it's probably more predictable. I'm not saying it's necessarily accurate, but it's more predictable how much money you're going to need. With a technology growth business... I think it definitely is. We might be funding a business over seven years or more. Yeah, you've no and idea, have the you? More, the bigger it grows, the, the more money we need to put in. So I like to have as many angel investors in round one as I can possibly manage. And indeed, we will reduce our individual contributions to a deal in order to increase the number of investors that are committed on round one. And that's because it's so much easier to get people in on round one than try and get them to come in in round two. <laughs> yeah, well, of course. But because we're an organized group, we actually all sign as part of the group membership uh, powers of attorney. Oh, do so you? That, mm. uh, so there's the, less people. You know, one, one of our in investments, I think, currently has 67 angel investors in it. But if one of the angel investors started <laughs> phoning up the founder, yeah. they'd be drummed out of the club. Yeah. Because we do not want the founder distracted by dealing with 67 investors. No. So we have an understanding amongst ourselves and a power of attorney goes in that the appointed non-executive director by us will make the majority of the decisions that the investors have. And we actually provide that power of attorney to allow them to sign paperwork and all that sort of carry on. So we manage the process really well. I think if, a, if an inexperienced founder goes out and gets four or five or six investors who don't know each other, haven't worked together, and he doesn't have a proper process for managing them, then they could end up spending a heck of a lot of time just fending off queries about how the business is going. He'll be on the phone all day. And often, depending on how experienced they are, the questions can be quite mind-numbing, in my experience, just because they haven't done it before and they don't necessarily know what's going on. So that sounds very beneficial, having a process and then Effectively, it's not decision by committee. You've got um, somebody who's got power of attorney to make decisions and deal with the, the proprietor yeah, of the I, business. I, I, that's something that needs to be worked out between the investors. You know, I'm pretty comfortable with the, my fellow investors nodding through certain things like increasing founder salaries or taking on new directors or hiring certain things because I know the investors that I work with really well. And I think that's possibly one of the other areas that is perhaps not thought through by new investors, is that in some ways, understanding my fellow investors is almost more important than really understanding the founder, strangely enough. Because in almost every company that really grows, the founder is rarely the person who is the CEO after five or seven years. 
because you tend to go through a stages where the founder's really good at, say, the technical part of it. But when you get to sales and marketing, you need to bring a new CEO in who actually understands how to do sales and marketing or manufacturing or distribution or customer care. And your founder actually gets moved around into the chief technical position or something like that. That should be part of the planning, actually, of the kind of succession of growing the business. So in a way, because you're dealing with the founder from day one and understanding how their position will change, it's easier to deal with than if you've got rogue shareholders. I really need to understand my fellow investors before getting involved in a deal to understand their attitude to risk, their ability to follow on when new funding's needed, their attitude to kind of play by the rules that we're setting within the investor group of not interfering. Again, I, you know, I recommend people joining these investment clubs or angel groups or angel networks and getting to know people before they commit to invest with them. Mm. So when you're going to round two, round three, round four, those original people who were in round one, are they bound to then participate in a second round or a third round or can they just stop at round one? And then I imagine it gets quite complicated working out the new sort of shareholdings, how many shares everyone has and what the you know, percentage of the company that's really worth. And how does that process work? Normally, an investment agreement in the UK certainly will give a condition that says if and when more money is needed, the existing shareholders have the first option to provide that money. But there's no compulsion on the investor base to provide that money. So if, you, if you're one of the five or six investors that went into a deal to start with, then you will be told that you have the right to take up X percent of the new amount of money. But if you don't want to, or your circumstances have changed, or you've got a portfolio that means two or three companies are raising new money at the same time and you can't fund them all, you're never going to be compelled to fund the new company. But I would generally advise that you should plan to fund the company going forward because if you're raising more money and you need to expand the shareholder base, it's much more difficult to persuade new investors to come into a deal if the existing investors are all not investing in it. They're going to say, well, this is such a good deal. Why aren't you taking it up? If I was putting 10 grand into a company, then I would be reserving it mentally three or four times that for follow-on funding. So I'm planning to follow on in the good ones at the very beginning, which is why I'm saying the mistake that new investors make is that they've got 50 grand available to become a business angel investor. So they put 50 grand into one company and then wait for the results to come back. What they should really be doing is putting 10 grand into several companies and having a little bit of reserve to fund the ones that are going to perform. So effectively, buying in the first round actually just provides you a way to get in on the second round. Absolutely. Yeah, I would agree with that entirely. Because really, you know, when you go in on the first round, you've got a nice business plan, you've got a pitch deck, you've got an entrepreneur who you have talked to in theory. But, you know, think of all your other business experiences where you're dealing with people. This is fundamentally an assessment of, do I think this entrepreneur, this founder can actually deliver? Now, if you've ever hired personnel into your own business, 
I'm not going to ask you to answer this, but how often have you got it wrong? <laughs> how often have you sat down, hired what you think is the best possible person to fill that job, and then after a couple of months realize you've really messed it up? And the same can happen, I'm afraid. So you've just got to be careful that you're not overcommitting to any one business. Okay, so lots of business owners don't want to share or sort of go in with others when they're launching their business, it's just their mentality. Maybe they, they don't want to sort of deal with other investors or take orders from other people. So they sort of go alone and they plough on and sort of try and grow their business organically. What's the disadvantage to them of doing this, apart from obviously all the input that the angels can offer? Why would they not want to do this? I think there is a kind of assumption that successful businesses need to uh, take on equity funding or good businesses do. The reality is that it is a minority, a very small minority of startups that take on outside investment. Probably four or five percent of all startups that occur in the UK and in America actually take outside equity investment. That's partly because many startup businesses simply don't have the growth potential of growing at 20 or 30% a year or an exit potential. So there are very many excellent plumbers, bakers, hairdressers, small garages, which will provide a potentially very good living for the people who found the business, but they're not necessarily going to be grown into something that's going to give me 30 times my money back. So People start businesses that are probably not going to be high growth enough to meet the risk of the failure rate. And other people start businesses, as you say, because they want to be their own boss, because they don't want to be beholden to other people. Or they want to start a business which becomes almost like a family legacy. There's a very high level of family businesses in the UK. And the problem with them taking equity finance is... Well, if you take equity finance, you're effectively a turkey voting for Christmas. <laughs> At some point, we want to sell that business to get our money back. And if you want to pass your business on to future generations, it's hard to take third-party equity because the third-party equity people are going to be looking for an exit at some point. And the exit is, is a sale, usually to another business. Now, we can be very patient. I've got a, an investment. You mentioned technology companies and the technology companies we go after. We will go after anything that looks interesting, exciting. And by interesting, exciting, I mean actually the entrepreneurs are interesting, exciting. The business has the potential to make a return. It doesn't have to be technology. It tends to be technology because they're the ones that have absolutely no option because they've got no assets to borrow against. But I've got a, an investment in a company that builds timber frame houses for national house builders. So it's arguably it's not a technology business. It bangs bits of wood together in a big shed. But over the last 15, 16 years, in dividend payments, we've had four and a half times our money back. And I get a dividend check just before Christmas that pays for Christmas. So it's quite nice. And that will continue going. Eventually, we'll want to get our capital back. But at the moment, it's paying a dividend, so we're quite patient about it. But that's rare. But I can see many reasons, going back to your original question, people shouldn't feel as if they are inferior because they don't take equity investing. I can quite understand, having come from a family business myself, 
maybe I wouldn't want to do it. But the disadvantages are you're going to grow more slowly because you are reliant on growing your business through generating your own profits or from borrowing from the bank. And people say, okay, well, I'll have more control of my business if I don't have third-party equity. I don't have an equity investor. I'll borrow from the bank. Actually, I think when you borrow from the bank, you might consider you've got less control over your business because you're going to sign up banking covenants. And they're going to tell you that you know, you're going to have to have a certain level of interest cover from your turnover. And I've seen very good businesses who have received a contract and need some cash for working capital go to the banks. The banks have simply turned them down and said, oh, no, 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 we don't want you expanding too quickly. <laughs> That's risky. <laughs> We're going to take a security over your personal property. So if the business doesn't actually do as well as we thought it was going to be, then you're going to lose your house. If the business doesn't do very well and you've got an equity investor in, well, unfortunately for the equity investor, they just take a bloody nose. <laughs> you're not losing your house as a founder. It's about speed of growth, I think. And I think you do lose out on the advantages of having some people on your board who've got skin in the game, as you described it. Yeah. Now... There are some other really big reasons for doing this, getting involved and being an angel investor. Clearly, the, the risks are very high, but the returns on the businesses that work can be stratospheric. But when businesses go wrong and you lose your money, I understand that there are some quite big tax breaks which soften the blow and effectively move the pendulum so that you can stomach more losses than you would otherwise ordinarily be able to do. Could you explain some of those benefits to us? Yeah, sure. The UK is a global leader, in fact, in a government providing an incentive for people to take a risk on early stage companies. And the principle is we want more people to stop investing in your property deals and start investing in some university spin-outs. So there's two schemes available primarily. One's called the Enterprise Investment Scheme and one's called the Seed Investment Scheme. But if we look at the Enterprise Investment Scheme, fundamentally, and keep the numbers simple, if a group of people were to put £100,000 into a company, then the government gives them a tax break of 30%. So the 100,000 investment actually only costs you 70,000 pounds. And then if you also happen to have capital gains that you've made on one of your property deals, you can roll those capital gains into the early stage investment as well. So if you're paying capital gains tax of whatever it is, 28% or whatever the, your band happens to be, then you simply defer that. So you can end up with more than a 50% discount, if you like, on your share price when you make your investment upfront. And that's quite encouraging. And then if you hold the investment for three years before it gets sold, then the investor pays no capital gains tax on the gain. So all, all the gain that was generated by the previous investment that you... Well, the gain on a previous investment will pop out and you'll be asked to pay the tax on that unless you reinvest it. But the gain on the new investment will be completely tax-free. That's, 
pretty encouraging. So it's sort of icer on speed, isn't it? It's, um... it, it? Well, it can be. It sounds good. It is hugely beneficial, but it needs to be looked at and used properly. A bad deal is not made good because you're only going to lose 50% of the money. <laughs> really? <laughs> because of a tax break. I don't think the benefit of the tax should be looked at on a deal-by-deal basis, but rather that looking at it as an asset class adjustment. So, sorry to pick on property, but what we're saying is, if I take this amount of money, 100 grand, that I might have put into property, and I'm going to put it into this other asset class of early-stage startups, then one of the advantages, my portfolio will benefit substantially from tax breaks. Yeah. Don't sit down and say, well, it's a bit of a marginal deal. I'm not quite sure about the management team. Product looks okay, but their sales uh, methods aren't so good. But hey, I'm getting a 50% tax break, so that's okay. (laughs) That's not how to use it. I suppose, no, but I suppose if you're at part of a good group, you're spreading it across a portfolio of 10, 15 companies, a little bit like if you were an equity investor and you were buying into a fund and you were spreading it over a spread of different assets, equities, and maybe bonds, you're spreading the risk. And hopefully those decisions coupled with the EIS or the seed investment scheme should mean that you end up with a good investment. Pile in. Absolutely. Um, It does make a very substantial difference at the end of the day. If you look at the post-tax effect, you know, what might be considered a modest profit, you double or triple your money because you built something and a nice company's come and bought it. And then you realize that actually the money in was only half of the cost and the money out is completely tax-free. Suddenly your multiple on your gain is very substantially better. Yeah, of course. Is it the same in Scotland? Is the tax treatment the same? Because I know you have different rules. Yeah, the tax treatment is exactly the same across the UK, England, Northern Ireland, Scotland, Wales. Yeah, okay. I think we've got Ken Clark to thank for a lot of this, haven't we? Well, I don't know who started it, but it actually goes back to the early 80s. Oh, does it? Um, The original scheme was called the Business Expansion Scheme, and it has been in place probably since about 82 or 83 under various guises. Whenever you read about encouragement of entrepreneurship or early stage investing globally, you will find the UK tax structure held up as the gold standard for other countries to follow through. It's been really interesting, Nelson. Have you got anything else you'd like to add which could benefit my listeners, you know, when they're looking at companies like this to invest in, when they're making judgments about angel investments? Is there anything else that you'd like to bring to this? What I would say is that I get a huge amount of satisfaction out of this type of investing. We've mentioned the financial returns. We haven't mentioned the other side, which is arguably the soft returns. But I've been involved in quite a number of companies in medical devices, for example. And, you know, there's one in particular I can think of where, yeah, at the end of the day, it was a really nice investment because I got 12 times my money back when when the company was floated on the UK main market, which is great. It was also really good because over the period of that company developing, we literally saved people's lives. When you get letters from customers saying, because of this device, you saved the life of my mum or my child or whatever, you get a huge bonus out of that. Even the timber company, 
we opened a new bit of the factory down there and there's 150 odd people turn up, sorry, who work there for the opening. And you realize you're providing the employment for those 150 people, all their families and all the other support services in the region that go to supporting that company. I get a lot more personal satisfaction out of that soft side than I possibly do buying a few shares on the stock market. So I think that this is something where you get a financial benefit, you get a psychological benefit, you can really feel you're doing some good, and you get the UK government helping you do it through tax incentives. So I think it's something that's really worthwhile doing, but I think it's something that you need to work at, and I recommend doing it with friends, recommend doing it with an established club or network, and get involved, but take your time and educate yourself a little bit. But you get some fantastic financial returns and psychological returns from doing it. Yeah. So what is the name of your group and where is it based, Nelson? The main group that I work with in Scotland is called Archangels. They've been going since 1992. They invest only in Scottish-based companies. But since 92, they've invested in about 85 companies. And the members of that are probably about 75 members at the present time. Over the years, they've put 100 million of their own money into startup companies based up here in Scotland. The other group that I'm primarily involved in is a little bit further away. It's called Ohio Tech Angels, and it's based in Ohio, which seems perhaps a weird place to go. But I like the people. I like the founder. And we get a heck of a lot more for our money than if we were trying to invest in Silicon Valley. Yeah, well, the valuations are slightly different, you mean? Absolutely. <laughs> I can't imagine. I had a go in, you know, in the early 2000s and invested in quite a few tech companies on the internet. I remember one we bought in the morning at 5p and by dinner time it was worth a pound. I mean, it, it really, that really <laughs> happened. Um, well, these things can happen. At the moment, the valuations for early stage tech companies in Silicon Valley are going in the opposite direction. Yeah, yeah. Over the last year startup valuations in the valley have come down about 25%. Yeah, well, I mean, the, you know, the, the story obviously continued and I bought more and more. And in the end, I think I spent 10 grand on my student loan on all this <laughs> stuff and it all went up in smoke because, of course, the company that went to a pound then went back to zero within, you know, a short space of time. But of course, a few good ones emerged, didn't they? Like the Google, the Amazon, the eBay. And I suppose it's finding those. But I still, I, mean, I look at the valuations of some of those leaders, I cannot get my head around it, how they're ever going to make enough money. There's a great deal of chat about unicorns. There's a government consultation out just now about scale-ups and complaining that the UK doesn't have as many unicorns companies worth a billion than America, for example. But then these valuations are you know, fantasy to some extent. There's a company, I think it's called Living Social, that Groupon bought recently within the last three or four months. Well, I think Living Social had had a valuation at its last round of funding of $5 billion. And Groupon didn't pay any money to take it over. <laughs> Which was described in the article I read about it as perhaps not the outcome that the investors were initially looking for. <laughs> <laughs> to put it mildly. So it would be always it would be nice if you happen to be in one of those businesses. But the reality is on round one, 
two or three of these businesses. Nobody knew that Google was going to be the size it is today. Nobody knew that Uber was going to be the size. People may claim, oh, yeah, I always knew that was going to be the case, but not really. And, you know, anywhere, and, you know, this isn't simply a kind of London phenomena or whatever. We were fortunate last year. I don't know how many angel investors were involved in it, if any. But the fifth largest exit globally last year was actually an Edinburgh company, Skyscanner. Oh, I used that. By the Chinese for 1.4, I think, billion dollars. That was the fifth largest exit globally from up here in Scotland. So they can happen anywhere. The other uh, thing about it, or correlation with lottery tickets, is you only win if you actually buy a ticket. So if you want to be part of this, you've got to go out and do some investing. Yeah. I remember back in the day, you know, there were probably 10 Googles. There was Yahoo, which sort of went by the wayside, but there were a load more as well. Oh, absolutely. Um, And of course, just picking the one out of the 10 or 20 or however many there were that was going to be the leader. Well, that's the trick, isn't it? And uh, I suppose the 18 of them went bust. Well, uh, yeah, yeah, well, (laughs) it probably isn't the way to go. Because if you look at some of the super angels, if you look at someone like Ron Conway, for example, who has been or was an investor in Google and in Facebook and in Ask Jeeves and a whole list of others, very well-known super angel in the Valley, his strategy at one point was simply to put $50,000 into every graduate from Y Combinator. (laughs) Because even then, he didn't know which of the 35 was going to be the winner. But on a kind of mathematical basis, well, I've got 50 grand in each of them, then one of the two of them is going to be a big winner. (laughs) You know, this comes back to the idea that can I go on to uh, crowdfunding or can I uh, just find a friend who's got one company? Am I going to back put all my money on that one horse, as it were? Or are you better off taking a portfolio approach and doing it with friends? So we come back to the end of the day, my advice is, yeah, you should do it, but do it properly. Do it in a slightly more sophisticated way than simply throwing a dart at a list of names on a board. Go and do it with people who can help you make some decent decisions. Great. Well, I've certainly learned a lot on this podcast, Nelson. I'm a potential candidate for your group, even though I live (laughs) a long way away, but I certainly find it interesting and I find a lot of the soft benefits fun as well i'd sort of really like that because of course like attracts like doesn't it and if you're in a group like that with a lot of investors who like investing in companies well you're probably going to make a load of friends from it as well so huge social activity as well you know working with people that are interesting as investors as well yeah they're going to be your well they're going to be my kind of people okay great I don't think there's anything else for us to go into other than to say thank you very much. I know. Thank you. Been a pleasure. Thank you for spending your time this morning on the podcast, Nelson. That has been Mark Homer for Mark My Words. Mm-hmm.